Good morning and a warm welcome to our podcast service for St Michael's Lillishall and St John's Muxton. My name is Jane Evans and I am a local minister. Today we will be continuing our journey through Revelation and Robin will be talking to us about chapter 21. Let's begin with a collect prayer for the Sunday before Lent. Holy God, you know the disorder of our sinful lives. Set straight our crooked hearts and bend our wills to love your goodness and your glory in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's now declare our faith by repeating this creed line by line. We believe in God the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We believe in God the Son, who lives in our hearts through faith and fills us with his love. We believe in God the Holy Spirit, who strengthens us with power from on high. We believe in one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our first reading is taken from Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 17 to 19. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Our second reading is also taken from Isaiah. This time, chapter 62, verses 2 to 5. The nations will see your vindication, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted, or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Good morning. Today we come to the end of our whistle-stop tour of the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has returned. He has fought his last battle against evil. He has destroyed Satan and demolished his kingdom. He has reigned for a thousand years, and he has defeated death itself. Here, in the climax of John's vision, comes the reward. Throughout the Bible, the story is always the same. God does all of the work, and his people reap the reward. In this final step in that story of God's love for his people, all that was lost in the Garden of Eden 
is redeemed, restored and reinstated. And therein lies a clue to the meaning of this chapter, and in reality the meaning of the whole Bible. God wants a relationship with his creation, and he will go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that that happens. Revelation chapter 21 consists of two main parts. There is one, what is going to happen, and two, what will it look like? At first it may be difficult to understand, it may be a mystery, but there are clues. I really enjoy mysteries, detective stories, adventure stories. In so many of the adventure stories there's a map, a treasure map. And on the treasure map the location of the treasure is marked by an X. This chapter of Revelation is just such a treasure map. And to prove that God has a sense of humour, cliché or not, X does indeed mark the spot. Let me explain. The Jews had a literary device that they used to enhance what they were saying or writing. Jesus used that device many times, as recorded in the Gospels, and that device is called a chiasm. It is named after the Greek letter chi, which looks like a capital X, and it uses two statements which cross over like an X. John F. Kennedy's phrase, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, is a chiasm. In that statement, your country is at either end, and you appears twice in the middle. The focus of this chiasm is in the middle, with the word you, making the point that citizens have responsibilities to their society as well as rights. The intersection of a chiasm is the focus, the crux of the statement. The first four verses of this chapter are a chiasm, followed by four further verses which spell out what will happen to people when the first four verses come to pass. So let us begin today with verse 1. The vision shows us a new heaven and a new earth. This is not a new idea, as we heard in our reading from Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. As far back as 800 BC, Isaiah had the same vision as John. But if there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, what happens to the old ones? What was wrong with them? Yes, humanity has made a hell on earth of this planet, but has heaven been affected by our sinfulness? God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't fail. We do. So, OK, a new earth would be good, with a perfect ozone layer and a, and a stable climate, but why do we need a new heaven? We must remember that Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It uses picture language throughout. Maybe this isn't going to be a literal new heaven and new earth. This is where the chiasm gives us a clue. Verse 1 speaks of a new order, both for God's kingdom and for our world, a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no chaos or uncertainty. That's what the there was no longer any sea means. That is the first statement. Then we have the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God. That is the second statement. Then we continue with a bride prepared for a husband, which is a repeat of the second statement, followed by verses 3 and 4, which tell of a new order of things, God living with his people, no tears, no death, no mourning, no pain, which is a repeat of the first statement. X marks the spot, and that spot is the pair of statements about the arrival of the new Jerusalem and the bride. What if these two things are not two things, 
but the same thing. What if the bride is the new Jerusalem? What would that mean? In other places in the Bible, the church, the body of Christ, is likened to a bride, dressed up and eager for the coming of her husband, Jesus. Not only in the sense of subservience, but in the sense of her relationship with him, based on love. But how can a city be a bride? Well, what was the function of Jerusalem to the Jews? Jerusalem, meaning foundation of peace, was the capital city of the people of God. It was the focus of their faith. It was the place where they came to meet with their God in the temple. The temple consisted of a series of spaces, an outer court where foreigners could come to learn about God, an inner court where the people of God could go to worship him and make sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins, and there was an inner space where only the high priest could go, the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant, complete with the angels on the lid. Between the wingtips of the angels was the presence of God, his physical presence, the Shekinah. The purpose of Jerusalem was to allow God and his people to come together as one community. Then about 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he too was the physical presence of God. By this time, the Jews had lost the ark and the physical presence of God, the Shekinah. When Jesus was born, he was a walking, talking Shekinah, the walking, talking presence of God. He came to set us free from our sins and to place his Holy Spirit within each one of us so that we can be in constant communication with him, the focus of our faith. Therefore, the church, the body of Christ, all of us who belong to Jesus, perform the same function as the temple in Jerusalem. This new covenant people, the church, is the new Jerusalem. So, the new Jerusalem is not a new city levitating down from heaven. It is a representation of the transformation of the people of God. This is not a place where we go in the future. It is a description of our future selves. With sin removed, we will live as we were designed to live, before Adam and Eve thought that they knew better than God. This is a description of believers in heaven. That being the case, how does it help us to understand what heaven will look like? Well, there'll be a new order to things, no pain or suffering, no sadness or tears. Instead, our God is coming to live with us, just like he did in a limited way in the past. I find it interesting that the first time that God came to live in the midst of his people was in the tent of the presence where the ark, complete with the Shekinah, was placed during the Exodus. In heaven, his dwelling place will be amongst us, in communion with us. And the word that is used to describe his dwelling here in verse 3 is tabernacle or tent. In fact, to jump ahead for a moment, the one thing missing from this description of the New Jerusalem is pointed out in verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Some might say that verse 5 contradicts my view of what this chapter means, particularly when we are told that all things are going to be made new. However, making things new doesn't mean replacement. It again points out the return to the way things were always supposed to be, God's people living in close relationship with God. Having told John to write this down once more, verse 6 spells out what Jesus has to offer. 
It is done. Literally, it has occurred. And that is not a re-crucifixion of Jesus, but a reference to something that happened in the past and is completed. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished, are the last words spoken by Jesus before he died. Obviously, he's spoken since then, but that was the last or the end of his earthly mission. Jesus was there at the beginning of the universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John chapter 1 verse 1. And Jesus was the last one to have to die under the old way of doing things. He is full of firsts and lasts. His nickname therefore is appropriate, Alpha and Omega, the original A to Z. Then there's the reference to water. Water to a desert tribe was the source of life. A few days without water and you are dead. To those who are thirsty, water is given freely at no cost. And it turns out that this is not just water. This is M&S water. M&S water, Messiah and Saviour water from the spring of life. This isn't the first time that Jesus has spoken about water in terms of spiritual inspiration. In John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 10 to 14, at the well of Sychar, Jesus offers a woman this very water of life. The Bible is filled with connections running right through it. And if we look at Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. We learn that water and spirit are describing the same thing. The fact that this gift is free of charge, i.e. it is grace, can be seen in Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This invitation to drink from the waters provided by God is to all peoples, as both of these Isaiah quotes refer to Gentiles as well as Jews. Well, who gets this water? In verse 7, we see that the victorious get it, referring to those who keep the faith under duress, not those who win. That we inherit it implies that we are family, in line to receive the riches of God. And notice also that God is going to be our God, but that we are not now going to be his people, as in previous promises. We will be his children, protected, valued, doted on but most of all loved. And those who won't get the water of life? In verse 8 we have a list, the cowardly, meaning those who betrayed their faith. Unbelieving, well that speaks for itself. Vile, literally having become foul, presumably means someone who has sinned their way through life. Murderers can be those who literally kill or those who kill by economics, politics and so on. The sexually immoral, those that practice magic arts, and that can mean placing our faith in our own minds or intellect, because not only magic but drugs fits here, which can be seen as concentrating on mental gratification. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't believe in doctors or medicine. Idolaters put things in the place of God, money, sex, fame, drugs, etc. Liars, not only the ill-informed, not those who make mistakes, but those who deliberately, wickedly try to misdirect misinform and mislead. Their reward? 
is to be thrown into a lake of burning sulphur, which is very smelly, sticks to the skin, and does terrible things to your lungs. Hellish would be a very good description. This is not a case of the good go to heaven and the bad stay on a hellish earth. This is being placed outside the walls, outside the reign of light, being excluded from God's presence forever. From verse 9 onwards, we have the description of heaven. And remember that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is not a place, it is a people. So this description applies to believers. Also notice that the angel promises to show John the bride, the wife of the Lamb, but instead shows him Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This forcibly links the new Jerusalem with the bride, and thus strengthens the idea of people, not place. Going back to the Ark of the Covenant for a moment, in verse 11, the shining brilliance ascribed to the glory of God is a reference to the Shekinah. But here it is so much brighter than it was in the temple, so much more powerful. The description of the walls is symbolic, of course. Twelve gates with twelve angels guarding them speak of the twelve tribes of Israel, whose names are written thereon. The location of the gates is also symbolic. There are four sets of gates, which suggests universality, and are located at the cardinal points, north, south, east and west. Every nation will be represented in heaven. After all, Jesus did say, make disciples of all nations. This city is in fact the brotherhood of Christ. All nations are welcome into this family. The wall is not a literal wall. It is a statement about safety and security. Why do we build walls? For protection against weather, animals or other people. Inside the walls of this city no sinful act can intrude, no evil act has a place. We are protected within the body of Christ. And what is this protection founded upon? The twelve foundations of the walls are the twelve apostles. Their teaching that came directly from the lips of Christ underpin this community of saints. The Gospels written under the apostles' authority are the foundation of our faith to this day. The jewels simply remind us that precious stones tend to last because they are wondrously beautiful, valuable and are resilient, just like the gospel message, which must always be our authority, our test against being led astray. In verse 15, the angel accompanying John takes out his tape measure. Well, he takes out his measure reed or rod made of gold, which enhances the idea of this measure being accurate, and finds that the city measures a multiple of twelve. What a surprise. The 12,000 stadia is equivalent to about 1,400 miles. It's a big city. But look closely. Although laid out like a square, the city is in fact a cube of 12,000 stadia along each side. Why a cube? In the temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies was 30 feet wide by 30 feet deep by 30 feet high. A cube. This reinforces the fact that God is going to be physically present with his people, just as he was partially present in the Holy of Holies. Except now, the Holy of Holies is the bride, the church body. 
In verse 17, the angel measures not with the gold rod, but with a human measure, and finds that the wall is 144 cubits thick, or high. The 144 is 12 times 12, and may refer to our faith being based as much in the Old Testament as in the New, i.e. 12 tribes times 12 apostles equals a very strong wall indeed. The jewels again serve to underline the strength, power and value of the relationship that we have with our God. But one item that did stand out was the pure gold as pure as transparent glass. Something that I learned many years ago was how ancient jewellers used to cheat customers. They would melt gold and copper together and create a piece of jewellery. The trouble was that the supposed gold item looked the wrong colour. It was too red, it was too coppery. So they placed the jewellery in acid, and the copper on the surface dissolved. As we know, gold is unreactive and thus remains untouched. Then they polished the surface, and all you could see was gold, the right colour. That was cheating. However, if the gold was transparent, the purchaser could see the imperfections. They could see the copper mixed in with the gold, just like you can see a fault or an inclusion in glass. Everything that you see in heaven is the real thing. No fakes, no cons, just the truth. That is a society that I want to live in. How about you? The idea of pearly gates comes from here too. Pearls don't appear in the Bible much, eight times in fact, with five in Revelation, and verse 21 has two of those. Pearls are a little ambivalent in that they appear as both positive and negative adornments. Here in Revelation 21, the pearl is seen as costly, dependable, beautiful, permanent, dazzling, reflecting the light of God. Essentially, where pearls are used to make an extravagant personal statement, they are negative. But where their beauty is linked with God's kingdom or his wisdom, they are strongly positive. Two other things about pearly gates. First, when Jesus was put in the tomb after his crucifixion, a stone was rolled over the doorway to keep animals and people out. The stone would have been round or possibly spherical. Here, spherical gates are made from single pearls. Can you imagine the effort needed to open them? A stone couldn't keep Jesus in the tomb, and this tells us that you can't break into heaven. Secondly, is that only God could design a protective mechanism which turns a piece of crud into a priceless pearl. We can pass through the gates of heaven only because of the transforming power of God's grace. Through the power of Christ's sacrifice, we are transformed from sinner to saint, from crud to pearl. The description of the city ends with the statement that the glory of God lights the place. There is no need for sun or moon, thus there is no day and night. Night is a time of fear and evil, but in heaven there is no night. Only those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb can enter this city. Christians are the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ, we are the new Jerusalem. This is a glimpse of what we will become. One final thought. During my time preparing this talk, something that Oscar Wilde wrote in The Importance of Being Earnest came to mind. He wrote, The good ended happily and the bad unhappily. That is what fiction means. 
In earthly terms, that is often true, because bad people get away with crimes and leave the good people in difficulties. Wouldn't it be nice if once in a while there was some justice? We all want there to be justice on earth, but it is elusive. In this final chapter of Revelation, there is justice. This is not fiction. This is the way that it was always meant to be. To paraphrase Oscar Wilde, in this book of Revelation, the good end happily and the bad unhappily. That is what Revelation means. Amen. Let's turn now to our prayers. At the end of each prayer, when I say, Lord, in your mercy, you might like to respond, hear our prayer. So let's respond in prayer to what we have heard today. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the wonderful revelation you gave to John and for the joy it brings us when we begin to see what you have in store for us. Thank you for the promise of a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more suffering or pain and where we can live with you. Most of all, we thank you for the promise that through you, the good really will end well and the bad will be brought to justice. Lord God, only you could come up with such a perfect plan and give us such hope for the future. Help us to share this great news with others. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let's pray now for the world. Almighty God, thank you that in these troubled times you still love us and care for us. We pray that you will guide our government as we continue in lockdown and seek to find a way to restore some normality. Help us all to act responsibly and show care for one another, rather than just thinking of ourselves. We continue to pray for an end to coronavirus and all its variants. We ask that you will stop the suffering and comfort and heal the afflicted. We lift up before you those who are caring for the sick. Please give them the strength and compassion they need each day to do their work. We pray too for the success of the vaccinations against the disease. Help us in all this to trust that your will will be done in the end. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let's pray for those we know. Gracious Lord, thank you that we can come to you knowing that you hear our fears and cares. We pray this morning for those known personally to us who are struggling with sickness, fear, bereavement or loneliness or who are in special need of your care at this time. We lift them before you as we name them in our thoughts now. Trusting in your love and mercy, we ask for your support your guidance and your healing touch on each one that we have remembered. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 
Let's pray an offertory prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for all those who have continued to give during difficult times. We ask now that you will bless the money given and use it to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we'll close by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Let's end with a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.